Hey folks, this is Michael. For this episode, Stefano and I spoke with Raul Pacheco Vega, an interdisciplinary scholar focusing on non-traditional commons. Raul and I had met at previous conferences of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, and I'd always wanted to speak with him more, particularly after I read several blog posts that he had put up and other resources that he had made available for the research community that he participates in. We spoke with Raul about water as a human right and as a commons, as well as waste and waste pickers and the all too commonly invisible work that so many people do to sustain the systems that we all depend on. Thanks for joining. This is the Finding Sustainability Podcast. We're here today with Raul Pacheco Vega, Professor of Public Administration in the Public Administration Division of the Center for Economic Research and Teaching based out of Aguas Calientes. And you were just telling me that that's also where uh, you live and where you're based. Yes, that's where I live, that's where I'm based. So CIDA has a main campus in Mexico City in the Santa Fe region, and I am in Aguascalientes. It's an academic unit or it's a research, it's, it's, so it's research and teaching, so it sounds like a university, but it's not calling itself university or is it housed in a larger university? Or? It's a really weird place because it behaves like a university and it behaves like an R1 university. As you know, in, in the United States, the R1 universities are research intensive, you know, universities are where you're required to sort of maintain a very high standard of publication and so on. So I think that basically what, you know, CETA would like to see itself to be is sort of the Harvard or the MIT uh, of Mexico. Uh, The only problem is that we are a research center. So as a research center, we're not technically a university. So we do have educational programs. We have two PhDs in political science and and public policy. We have seven or eight master degrees and seven or eight undergrad degrees. So we basically function like a university, we just don't have the title. Uh, we had a discussion about, you know, two or three years ago to see if we could call ourselves CIDA University. And, you know, people were like, no, this doesn't sound nice at all. So, you know, we behave like a university, but we're a research center. Fine. It's, you know, it's a little bit sort of like Rand Corporation, I think. I was looking at your CV role and I see that you got a PhD in resource management and environmental studies at the University of British Columbia. But then I'm, I'm interested in, I was noticing in the same section of your CV, it says in parentheses, political science and human geography. And I was looking at your blog post. This is what we do with guests. We, we try to internet stalk them before we talk to them. Absolutely. And I saw you, you've kind of, you have espoused this joint intellectual identity as a political scientist and a human geographer. So I'm just interested in how you understand that, how you understand the political science part of you, how you understand the human geography part of you. Because I think to a lot of people, those are, you know, they're related, but they're rather different things. You know, when I think human geography, I think of the, you know, maybe more of the ethnography that you're doing. Um, I know ethnography is not something that's as popular, at least in the, in the American brand of political science that I know. So I'm interested in how you came to that dual identity and how you understand it now and how it kind of 
works for you in the world. Of Absolutely. Academia, et cetera. Absolutely. So let me just back up a couple of uh, a couple of steps. So originally, I was going to study international relations, and my parents said, "No, international relations is like you know for dumb people, and you're smart, so you have to do something like engineering related." So my undergrad right. is in chemical engineering, and I have four brothers, and I'm the youngest, and we are you know, five engineers, you know, I'm a chemical one. So it's funny because I chose chemical engineering because I was like, you know, my parents must really think that I'm a softie because I always liked, and, and this is actually what underpins my identity as a scholar. I have always been interested in cooperation. That's sort of the motto of my entire life that I've always been, you know, social extroverted. And that also underpins, you know, the sort of, theoretical and empirical questions I look at, and that's been through the years, not only as, you know, as a person, but also as a scholar. So I started chemical engineering because I was told that it was the toughest and the hardest. So I was like, yeah, let's do that. If my parents are not going to let me do international relations, I'm going to do chemical engineering, which is the toughest engineering of them all. And my undergrad thesis was a study of the treatment of how you could treat wastewater that is refractory. So that means very hard to treat, very hard to degrade chemical compounds and so on, um, using bacteria. And in this case, bacteria cooperate among themselves to degrade the chemical compounds. So I started applying cooperation since I was an undergrad in the engineering side. And then I was like, gonna get me killed because I study wastewater and I treat wastewater, but I'm gonna get, you know, sick and die out of uh, an entire disease. You know, you have to sample wastewater and sometimes that something included, you know, aerosol sampling, uh, you know, drinking wastewater, which is not good for your health. I don't recommend it. <laughs> so, yeah, I can imagine, okay. It's terrible, it's really bad. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna do, you know, something that is a little bit more social science economic side. So I did a master's in economic of technical change at the University of Manchester in England. And there I realized that, you know, I no longer had to do, you know, sampling of wastewater, but I started working with the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry. And my master's thesis is a game theoretical model of how pharmaceutical companies that are huge can cooperate with small pharmaceutical, small biotech companies. So the biotech has, you know, data and the uh, pharmaceutical has sort of the marketing capabilities. And you have a problem of moral hazard where, you know, pharmaceuticals don't want to give, you know, all their information about their marketing channels to the biotech and the biotech doesn't want to give the intellectual property of the drug uh, to the pharmaceutical. So they need to cooperate in conditions of asymmetric information. So I created a game theoretical model of this cooperation, how this cooperation could come across, which is, you know, one of the ways in which I came across, you know, our beloved Lynn and Vincent Ostrom. So okay. for, my, for my PhD, I wanted actually to do my PhD at Indiana, at Bloomington with uh, Lynn and Vincent, but my mom's sister died the year I was going to do my PhD. So um, I decided I wasn't going to go where I didn't know anybody. I, you know, I, I consider Vancouver, British Columbia, my hometown. So I said, I'm going to go do my PhD at a university in the city where I can, you know, 
where's my home? So Vancouver is my home. And I decided I'm going to go to UBC. And UBC has a program called Research Management and Environmental Studies. So what they say is, you know, we're an interdisciplinary program, but you need to sort of choose a disciplinary approach because the world is disciplinary. So if you need to sell yourself once you are trying to get a job, you need to choose a discipline. And me being the way I am, I decided to do not one discipline, but to do two disciplines. So I decided to specialize in political science and human geography. That means I run comprehensive exams in political science, comparative politics and international relations. And I also did my comprehensives in human geography, which means I also did economic geography and environmental geography as my comprehensive. So it's a little bit bizarre because I decided to do something that, as you said, are like two disciplines that are very, you know, different. And in the end, I did that because I think both human geography and political science can inform what I'm finally interested in, which is public policy that looks at problems of vulnerable communities and marginalized communities with environmental data. So that's basically how I came across. I decided, you know, I I want to do public policy informed by political science and human geography, um, which again was informed by Lynn and Vincent's interdisciplinary work. I mean, if you read Lynn's dissertation, Lynn's dissertation is a public administration dissertation. Um, Mm. So it's, it's sort of, very much public administration, political science, public policy, but also I think, and and this is something that also permeates from Lynn's work and, you know, obviously it touches your own work and the work of all the Ostrom workshoppers. There's always a connection with scale. And in the end, human geography looks at place, location, and scale. Hmm. So to me, political science and human geography actually dialogued well enough to make me a better public policy analyst. Okay, so we've got a lot, we've already got a lot to talk about here. So you mentioned, Raul, the the background you have in chemical engineering, looking at wastewater. You've had this longstanding interest in the commons and, and cooperation. And as someone who was kind of raised as a, a traditional Ostrom commons scholar, It's one of the things that I was really excited to talk to you about is, particularly once we started to engage in the last week or two, is how you've looked at, as you call them, non-orthodox commons or non-traditional commons. I think that's been a challenge for for the commons community, right? We've got, you know, we look at forests, we look at fisheries, maybe a little bit of pastures, and then we've got these irrigation systems. And we're very, like, pretty sectorally specific. And we have this typology of of goods that we've all kind of mentally inherited. And, uh, you know, a critique of the commons literature, a lot of it has been, well, the world's a lot more complicated. There's a lot of ways in which humans interact with their environment that aren't captured by, okay, you have a CPR and then you have a collective action problem produced from it. So I'd love to hear about how you've tried to deal with the awkwardness that I'm perceiving you know, I, you've said you've worked with solid waste. I know you've worked some with, with water and bottled water, and that's also engaging with the concepts of, of human rights and politics. So do you see that work as moving the, the commons field forward in the way that I'm kind of implying? So Lynn and Vince have visited UBC as visiting professors, and mm. uh, they, they spent some time there. And 
we went out for lunch uh, and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm taking Lee Nostrom and Vincent Nostrom to lunch. You know, this is like a really big deal. They yeah. never allowed me to pay, you know. As you do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was like, you know, uh, I, I was like, you know, this is, I, I, I am Superman. I mean, I'm inviting the Ostroms to, to lunch. So over lunch, uh, I discussed with them, you know, my background in chemical engineering and my background in treating wastewater. And it's funny because Lynn turns to Vincent and says, you know, we have never looked at wastewater as a commons. And I think Raul should be the person to do it, don't you think? And then Vincent turns back very serious and says, you know, you're right. I mean, we have never looked at this. I mean, you know, we, we could connect Raul with Leti Merino from, you know, the Institute of Social Research in Mexico who studies forest commons, but I think it's a lot more interesting if he looks at wastewater as a commons because there, there's sort of these new way we he could find ways to revalue something that we are all interested in accessing, which is, you know, wastewater, and mm -hmm. then actually extracting value from that. And and, and that would be uh, another way of looking at the commons. So that's basically how I came to do this. I mean, the Ostroms told me you should do this. And I was like, I'm not one to, you know, disagree with the Ostroms. So uh, the way I've looked at this is, is as follows. I think that Water is a commons, as you said, you know, because this is the, the type of good that is um, sort of subject to congestion and, and accessible by a lot of people. And the problem with wastewater is that a lot of people flush their toilet and they just stop thinking about it. They're like, you know, I flush my toilet out of sight, out of mind. I don't, I don't need to deal with it. But in reality, that could potentially be a resource. It could be the temperature, sort of the absorbed heat that the water, the wastewater has with it, can be used, you know, in in heat exchangers, and, and it can be used. You you can extract value from it, and as you treat it, the biosolids that you extract from wastewater treatment can also be revalued and used for fertilization. So, in fact, wastewater is not waste per se, but it could be seen as a valuable you know, as a valuable asset. And as such, it could be viewed as a non-orthodox common and sort of, you know, these commons that we don't see as valuable, right? Um, so that's basically sort of how I try to advance the theory of the commons, sort of looking at these commons that we see as waste and that we see as discarded uh, as no longer having value. And now it actually, they. I try to look at ways in which we can revalue it. And for example, with bottled water, it's it's water, it's a commons, but it's also a commons that becomes a commodity and it mm -hmm. becomes sold and enclosed and so on. So how how does that sort of balance, you know, having a commons and having a human right, you know, because the water uh, water is now a human right since July of 2010, but how can we sort of balance these competing definitions of the same good and the same object. You know, water is a commons that is exhaustible and therefore we need to be careful in the ways that we manage this resource. But also, you know, from an ecocentric perspective, we should ensure that everybody has access to this resource. But at the same time, the processes of capitalism and extraction of value also make water a commodity by enclosing it.
So these are new ways in which we can look at it from a common sphere perspective and also look at this as from a common sphere perspective presents a challenge because these, cha these sort of conversations that we need to have also deal with who has rights to access the, the sort of the property. So right. it, it comes back to uh, what Lynn and, and, and Vincent very much worked on, which is the property right. But then you get into philosophical discussions with waste. Who's is waste, right? Like is your trash yours or is right. it, you know, the municipalities or is it uh, sort of the, the informal waste speakers? So I study, as you know, I study informal waste speakers and uh, their, their uh, patterns of behavior. And one of the questions that, you know, arises that is a little bit more philosophical is, you know, whose is that trash, right? Like who should own that trash? And, and if that is, you know, sort of the property now of waste pickers, then we need to find ways in which we can re-empower waste pickers to extract value from that trash for their livelihood. Waste pickers are incredibly vulnerable populations. And as I said, to, to the core, my work is the, what drives me is not only cooperation and cooperation, uh, and, and I'll talk a little bit about my PhD research uh, in a little bit if you guys are interested, but I'm interested in cooperation, but cooperation that ends up, you know, reducing the gap between the rich and the poor and also improving the livelihoods of vulnerable populations. It just so happens that I use environmental problems to, you know, sort of work with that philosophy, but that's my core philosophy and that's what I'm interested in ultimately. Okay, so you're, I mean, this is really interesting. Your description of... The argument that we should view waste also as a resource reminds me of the discourse that I've heard within industrial ecology, where folks are talking about having a less throughput intensive economy, and we need to kind of close these loops so that, you know, what's a waste for one component is a resource for another one. And if you can just make that, if you can iterate that, then suddenly we've got a lot less waste in general. Is, is that part of partly how you think about it? Absolutely. I mean, let's remember, I'm a chemical engineer. I think in a system, in a closed system, right? Like for mm -hmm. me, you know, nothing is created or destroyed. It's just, you know, transformed. Right. So I look at it from a very much like the industrial ecology sort of viewpoint where, you know, it's, it's sort of that, but also systems thinking, because I always thought that sort of these polycentric governance, uh, you know, complex adaptive systems theories also apply to waste in a way it can be a complex adaptive system and it can adapt itself to close the loop and to reduce the throughput and to reduce how much waste we create and you know how we end up creating this waste. Mm. So these these waste pickers, they I imagine there's some kind of informal property rights arrangements that they develop, or am I just projecting? No, 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 absolutely. So so this and, and this is why my work on institutions and institutional theory is, is interesting for that, because informal waste pickers have very different patterns of behavior across nations. And I can tell you, for example, that in Madrid, in Spain, cartoneros, the waste pickers from uh from Spain, pick up cardboard and they do so at very different hours of the day. And the mm -hmm. sort of demographic breakdown of waste pickers in in Madrid would be sort of, you know, young people, you know, impoverished people. 
But as Spain has gone through a crisis and an economic crisis, what I started seeing is sort of a specialization of you know the behavior where not only waste picking happens in downtown Madrid, but also happens in, in the periphery. And when this happens in the periphery, what you see is middle-class people, like people like you, me, everybody else, uh, picking this waste. And they do so in some countries contravening regulations, like in Spain, but hmm. in some other countries, and that's where my work on cooperation becomes interesting, in some countries and cities like Aguascalientes, it's actually a cooperative arrangement where the local government purchases the waste already sorted from the waste pickers. So in some cities, you'll see very conflictive, non-collaborative arrangements like in Madrid where, you know, these waste pickers are portrayed in the press and uh, in the public press in, in mass media as stealing you know, the very valuable cardboard that the city of Madrid should be revaluing and, and sort of processing. Whereas in Aguascalientes in Mexico, you see that these waste pickers are seen as part of the entire structure of production. So the entire cycle. So in, in that sense, in, in Aguascalientes, you see more of a closed loop, sort of a more equitable approach to waste governance. Whereas what you see in Madrid is less cooperative. And this varies across countries. So in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, there's also very cooperative approaches. In León, in Mexico, where I'm staying right now, there's sort of less cooperative approaches. And you see sort of a, you know, a range of behavior in between these sort of, you know, polar opposites, you know, Montevideo in Uruguay or, you know, Tokyo in Japan and so on. Okay. I mean, this reminds me of the discourse we have in the U.S. and probably elsewhere about the the gig economy, yeah. right? So we have all of these these folks that are working very informally um, on their own hours, but they're also very vulnerable and they're not very empowered formally. They don't have insurance, et cetera. And so that's been a criticism of this new gig economy. And so I, I guess the question I have related to that then is, in a in a place where there is more cooperation between these waste pickers and the government, um, does that lead to a, a kind of formalization of rights of the waste pickers? Are they empowered and made less vulnerable? So this is a really interesting question because um, one of the main discussions right now happening in Latin America is the right to the city. So right to the city is sort of this broader discourse that is being applied, for example, to homelessness policy, to you know, waste policy related to informal waste speakers. And what I'm seeing in my empirical case studies, I do a lot of ethnography, as you know, what I'm seeing in my case studies is that there's a lot of formalization where there's cooperation. Mm -hmm. If there is no cooperation, informal waste speaking continues, but then we see, you know, sort of these very informal arrangements also between the waste pickers and the households. One of the things that I've observed that this is fascinating, and it has happened to me that households, when waste picking occurs at the household level, households develop a relationship with their waste pickers. And mm. in that sense, they become protective of their health and protective of their rights and protective of you know, so these, as you know, 
lead to strategies, norms, and then norms become institutions, right? So mm-hmm. this repetition of inter- this repeated interaction between households and waste pickers with time, they develop an informal arrangement that is sort of this collaborative arrangement between the household and the waste picker. This is fascinating to me because this is a way of circumventing, you know, environmental regulation and, and labor regulation. If households cooperate with individual waste pickers, waste pickers no longer have to fight with zero regulation because they have their supply, they have their, you know, raw materials. All they need to do is go and sell it. I've been thinking how your interest is in this idea of cooperation and perhaps also collective action problems. And one thing I've been thinking about, which I haven't seen as much literature or focus in the commons field on is this idea of collective action and cooperation uh, across different policy levels, you could say. So from the local to the regional or or national. And from the perspective of property rights, one could take the view that the role of public policy to some extent is to facilitate the appropriation of property rights for uh, to the different actors who are involved to help facilitate how that process goes. And, and, and I'm wondering if you have an example of cooperation, which has gone across levels uh, you gave a nice example there with the, the waste picking. And I'm wondering in, in the water realm, um, cause I think, well, one, one aspect of why I'm interested in that is that I think privatization has a bit of a negative connotation in the commons scholarship, and you can view privatization as a, as a continuum between open access and, and increased amounts of property rights allocation over time. And, and I'm wondering how, if you have any examples within the water realm, which facilitate or shown how the facilitation of property rights within public policy has been a very positive cooperative process between different actors. I am so glad that you asked that question, Stefan, because um, I used to be that person. I used to be the anti-privatization sort of David Harvey accumulation by disposition, you know, sort of very neo-Marxist, you know, don't ever uh, extract any value from anywhere or, or any resources from anywhere. And last year, I did a semester of a visiting position at uh, Nouvelle in, in Paris, Paris 3, the University of Paris 3, at uh, the Institute for the Americas in, in, in Paris. And I had the chance to do fieldwork and interview privatizing companies. France has the two biggest privatizing companies, the two biggest privatizers of water in, in the world, Suez uh, and and Veolia. So I had the opportunity to interview top management at Veolia in in, in Paris. And after I interviewed people at Veolia and after I interviewed scholars, French scholars of privatization of water and and water utilities, what I came to realize is that what a lot of the North American literature understands as privatization is in fact contracting. So in the range from, you know, pre-municipalization and completely public supply of water and privatization, there's sort of this intermediate point where you have contracting. So the water utility is still the property of the municipality, of the local government, uh, and it can come back to uh, local control at any point in time. But 
it is operated by a company, in this case, Veolia and Suez Environment. I was living in, in Paris with my mom as well at in the Banlieu, in the, in the periphery of Paris, very, very close to Paris, but just outside Malakoff. And our waste was being managed by Veolia and Suez. But in Paris, and, and our water as well, and, but in Paris, the city, water is completely and entirely public. And the process of remunicipalization was actually a really big deal. It's sort of the, you know, uh, model case of remunicipalization because the former mayor of Paris uh, campaigned and her campaign was, you know, on taking Suez and Veolia, whose, you know, home offices are in the city of Paris, to take them out of operating the water system in the city of Paris. So this remunicipalization process is seen in the literature as sort of the, the, the star case or, or, the, or, or the perfect case of remunicipalization. But so what I wanted to, the reason why I went to Paris was to study this case. And what I found out was that the remunicipalization process occurred because Veolia realized that it was better for them to lose this sort of political battle and, and this contract for very few connections to the water system than to lose the entire contract of the metropolitan area of Paris, you know, all, all of the little uh, uh, municipalities around the city of Paris. So they lost the contract to operate the system. It, it's not that they bought the system. It's not, it's not that they bought, not that Veolian Suez bought the, the water utility. They were just operating it, but they lost the contract so that they would lose the rest of the of the contract, which is something I'm writing up and, and, and going to submit to, to a journal. But I'm saying this because I think one of the biggest issues with privatization is that it's very badly seen, and I used to see it very badly. But what happens with water utilities is that they're very badly funded, and that's because of the fiscal structure and the multi-level, as you said, the multi-level governance structure. So federations collect the vast majority of taxes, but those who have to submit, those who have to operate the local services are water utilities, so like water utilities and gardens and, and uh, waste picking and treatment are municipalities, cities, local sub, subnational governments. So in the end, subnational governments have the responsibility of providing these local services, but they don't have the tax base. So this is sort of structurally stupid. And I'm surprised that this has not been resolved just about anywhere in the world. So what happens is that municipalities end up subcontracting or privatizing their water utilities and their solid waste utilities because they don't have the capacity to, do, to, to provide the service. They have other uh, priorities. If federations provided the tax base, we could probably see a lot more public utilities. But the problem is that federations don't often do that. So for example, in Mexico, that's the case. The federation does not give a lot of money to local water utilities. So a lot of the you know, water utilities in Mexico are underfunded. And, and this is why some of them, including my own, including Aguascalientes, go and, 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 and they're privatized. And they're privatized by Veolia in, in France. So it was interesting because when I was doing the interview in Paris, I had a video conference with Veolia, you know, 
people in Mexico, in Aguascalientes. And I was like, I should have interviewed you when I was in, in Mexico. I know not when I'm in Paris. Yeah, that's interesting. Another aspect that I was been thinking about personally a lot is as we move towards a increased amount of property rights assignment, as things get more and more privatized, I think you have a certain path dependency aspect there where it becomes then difficult to, to deprivatize certain aspects. It, 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 it's hard to bring or take away those rights from, from the actors or the, the companies or the individuals who have been assigned those rights over time. And it seems like water could be an interesting case. I'm not too familiar with it. I wonder if there's any examples of deprivatizing water. Um, I, I think perhaps, you know, Remunicipalizing it, if that yeah. was the right word, yeah, uh, is right part word. of that process. And I think we, we've we've had a lot of literature about how things become more privatized, but we haven't had a lot about processes of, of removing that and what some of the cooperation problems uh, specific to those types of processes. Yeah, exactly. Arise. So uh, there is a small but growing literature on remunicipalization. David McDonald and uh, the. Transnational Institute. I mean, there's there's a growing literature. The problem with the remunicipalization literature, and I speak as someone who you know has contributed to that literature, is that it becomes very much a literature that is normative. So instead of explaining why cities and uh, and regions remunicipalize, what ends up happening is that they present case studies of so unique case studies where this remunicipalization has occurred and it has operated well. You know, Paris is, is one of the cases. Uh, there are other cases in Hamilton, Ontario. There are cases in Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I, I mean, and and uh, Atlanta in, in Georgia, in the United States. There's there's a lot of cases. I mean, there's about 220 cases now in the world of remunicipalization. The problem is that what we see is that there's a lot of contracts that are being not renewed. So we don't actually understand a lot of why a city would take it upon itself to remunicipalize. In the Parisian case, what happened was that it was a political decision. In the Mexican case, we have one Mexican case, which is Ramos Arispe in Coahuila in the northern part of Mexico. And it was also a political decision. You know, the mayor campaigned on you know, remunicipalizing water. The problem again becomes human uh, human capital. If you have a, a process where you know the contracting of the contracting of the water utility does not yield training of human capital of the local government, what you once you end the contract, then once you know you remunicipalize, you end up not having train people to operate a water utility. Now, water utilities are incredibly hard and complex to, to manage. So are waste utilities. So, you know, I personally prefer to have a privatized water utility and a privatized, uh, you know, trash uh, management uh, company than not having anybody, anybody to operate it. Where you need cooperative approaches is when a government realizes that for them, it's better to have a contract, like a, a private contract of operation of the water utility that is short-term. So they can say, well, you know, we're going to, oh yeah, 
I'm the city of Acapulco in Guerrero in Mexico, and I no longer can operate my water utility without losses. So come operate the system for 10 years, train my people, and then, you know, you can leave and you will live with, you know, some financial gains. And I gain trained human capital. The problem is that a lot of these contracts for uh, privatization are not very well designed. And this is interesting regarding the property rights literature because this is where a good lawyer with an understanding of property rights and, and, and human rights and so on could come and develop these, these contracts. If you see the text of most, and, and I've read a lot of uh, privatizing contracts, it's completely draconian. I mean, you, you would not believe how much power uh, privatizing companies have and how much money they, they actually make out of this. So it's, it's insane. But the problem is, again, that what we see is a problem of human capital and, and educated, trained human capital, which I think all of us, all three of us, uh, and the audience of this podcast will be interested in. In the end, what we are seeing is an implosion of educated people. Like we don't, we don't have enough educated people in the trades or at the university level to manage water utilities and waste utilities. So we become, you know, public utilities and, and sort of public services becomes uh, an opportunity for uh, privatizing actors. But that's because we don't have enough trained people. So uh, this is sort of a call for governments to fund education and fund trades educations and fund universities because we are the people who could operate, you know, these utilities, but we don't do that because, you know, these sort of new public management approach to managing systems and sort of to public administration and saying austerity is good because we need to save money. Well, actually, not always. It's not always good. Austerity is not always good, actually. Anyway, uh, I, I digress. So that's those, there, there are cases that are successful in privatization, in, in but those cases tend to be cases where uh, the water utility, where the local government has human capital for the water utility or the solid waste utility or the energy utility. So that's, that's the main prerequisite, that they have people who can operate the systems. If they don't, then... The, the remedy ends up being the remedy is worse than the, the cure is worse than the illness. So, Raul, what do you think about these broad dichotomies and categories, public property versus private property, privatization as this other kind of dichotomy, these other ideal types? And then as soon as you start talking about these cases, of course, things get much more complex. In my own fieldwork, I've struggled with some of these idealized representations of, say, property rights. When you get into a place, it's, it's, it's inevitably much more complicated and you feel like I need, you know, there's 10 different types of property here, right? And I think based on how you kind of started this conversation, it reminds me of one particular trickiness of dichotomies is that they seem to recruit our kind of tribalistic nature, where as soon as it's private versus public, then you've got the folks that have decided they're for private and the other folks are, are for public. And we're off to the races. So do you think that these idealized types are still a good place to start and we just have to get into the weeds and actually talk about how complicated things are relative to that? Or should we just start somewhere else? 
So I'm, I'm really glad that you asked this, uh, Michael, because I'm working on a couple of papers right now on informality, formal and informal. Um, and, you know, you're awesome trained as well. So we, we talk about these formal rules and informal rules. And this is sort of, you know, this dichotomic view of the world. But in reality, informality occurs within a continuum. I mean, there is some degree, for example, I one of the things that I study is informal water vendors, those people who provide water in very water insecure areas. And these people can be, you know, driving water tankers or they can be selling bottled water in, in, in 20 liter jugs and, you know, driving their little trucks and, and delivering them. Um, and, and this is a really interesting problem because when I was trained in, in sort of this institutional theory, I was told, you know, formal rules are formalized. You know, these rules, they're encoded and, and they're sort of very, you know, they, they establish behavior and they establish behavior in a very coded kind of way, whereas informal rules are rules in use. This is the way in which people behave. They may or may not be encoded. What I have been looking at has been the informality literature, and the informality literature argues that there's this sort of continuum, and, and this relates to exactly the same problem that you're facing. I mean, these economies of formal, informal, private, public, you know, they're no longer useful. You know, there's sort of this range, and there's nuance, and we need new ways of categorizing and, and new typologies of property rights and, and publicness, privateness, and uh, new new ways to look at the way in which we look at formal and informal rules. I mean, I can't say that a water tanker is informal completely because they pay taxes. So they have mm. this sort of, you know, organizational sort of formality but they're informal in the sense that they're not part of the main water pipe network system. So they do provide a service and it's a service that you pay for. So you could see it as sort of private supply, but it's also public because a lot of the times local governments don't have the capacity to provide water, piped water in very remote regions. So they send tankers. And, and and I think your fieldwork and, 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 and my own work as well are pointing to new ways of conceptualizing these sort of dichotomies. You know, there is no longer formal and informal and no longer public and private, but we need to find sort of these degrees and, and to accept that to some degree, something is going to be a little bit informal and a little bit formal and a little bit private and a little public. We haven't talked a ton about the specific instance of bottled water and how that engages with all this. Because you, you mentioned the importance of water as a human right and bottled water as a way of potentially securing that human right, but then in that involving all of the trappings of some aspects of privatization. Absolutely. So uh, the, the way we, so I've been, I'm finishing a book on the politics of bottled water at the global comparative and domestic scales. And one of the ways which I have been thinking about bottled water is, you know, at some points and in some regions, 
you do need bottled water. I mean, Flint, Michigan is one example. Mexico is the top consumer per capita of bottled water with 354 liters per person per year. Um, and a lot of people think, well, you know, I can drink tap water in Paris and Madrid and most of the citizens in the United States. Pittsburgh, I think it's no longer one of them, but, you know, and Washington also had a big problem with Georgia uh, a few years ago. The problem is I, the way I approach bottled water as a policy solution is I have no problem with using bottled water to enact the human right and to facilitate the access to the human right to water in, in cities and, and, and regions, and particularly marginalized regions, as long as it doesn't come along with a dereliction of duty of the government. I mean, in the end, hmm. the states, states are supposed to be providing services. And, you know, as, as a workshopper, you know of the work of Lean with co-production and, and the co-production of services. I think co-production is fabulous. And I think that there are opportunities for civil society to co-produce public services. The problem is when this co-production ends up being substitution. And I can tell you about three policy areas where this substitution is happening. One, uh, Elder, elder, elderly people, you know, elderly people are no longer part of the public policy uh, set of policy instruments. You know, they're not a policy area where there's a lot of work. Why? Because you, me, we all, like my parents are aging. I'm taking, the reason why I live right now in Leon is because I want to take care of my parents, of my mom and my dad who live in this city. And, but I am a citizen. I, there should be, services to help me deal with my aging parents and me and, and everybody else in the world. And the problem is that these sort of processes of private actors providing public services and, and these processes of co-production end up being sort of de uh, deviated and the, it becomes a substitution. So what I, regarding to the bottled water issue, what I ended up thinking is, you know, I'm fine with a temporary solution of, you know, when there's denial, infrastructure denial, when there is no access to water, yes, you can provide bottled water, but it has to be temporary because in the end, the responsibility of providing water is the responsibility of the government. Most governments, not the United States, which is bad, uh, but most governments have signed on to the declaration of the United, of the United Nations of 2012, 2010. Uh, where, you know, there's a declaration of the human right to water. Now, the problem is how do you operationalize a global norm like the human right to water at the local level and the, the subnational level? That's also a discussion that I'm trying to contribute to. But the problem is, you know, it ends up being all about money. And that's also why, you know, you see a lot of this dereliction of duty. Governments come and tell you, you know, I cannot provide safe water for everybody. So, people should be buying bottled water. Or I can no longer operate my local uh, landfill. You know, we need a private company to come and take over and uh, revalue the ways that we are producing. And that to me is sort of the easiest way out. And I'm not sure I agree with the way, easy way out. I, I think... Mm. Uh, I think bottled water is a temporary solution. I think, you know... If water is to be 
really sort of a public good and, and, and a human right, you need governments need to provide for it. And to do that, they need a tax base. So we need to pay taxes as well. Right. Uh, but also those taxes need to be well used and well spent. So I have a, a question that's kind of a follow-up to several things you've said. Uh, a while ago, I listened to the podcast Freakonomics a fair amount, and they have a really great episode called In Praise of Maintenance. And what they talk about in that episode is how, how important just maintaining the systems we have are. And um, additionally, right, how undervalued maintenance and care work is. We undervalue care. The profession's about care. And so when you're talking about these different, you know, whether it's the care for the elderly and whether it's the waste pickers, whether it's the lack of human capital to make some of these waste management systems run, you know, these are vital functions. We need waste management. It's not sexy. It's not glamorous, right? It's not going to get you a nice house in Palo Alto based on some new app that you've created, just to use that as an unfair straw man, I guess. So... I'm wondering, do you, have you noticed, do you feel similarly that um, we have all of these critical functions and part of the, the challenge is actually that we're undervaluing them? So that, you know, sometimes it feels like the more critical you are to other particular human beings, whether you're a nurse or a teacher or whether you're, you know, making sure that, you know, that things run on time, um, almost the less valued you are. And, and surprise, surprise, we don't have enough of those folks. Yep. Yeah. I, I actually, I think you just nailed, like hit the nail on the head. I think this is, I think support systems. And I, I and I remember Lynn published a paper in the Encyclopedia of Life Support Systems. And I was always surprised as why would she publish in an Encyclopedia of Life Support Systems. But you're entirely right. The thing is, the life support systems that we have are extraordinarily invisible. Yes. I mean, we do not value public health and we do not value epidemiologists and we do not value sanitation workers and we do not value, you know, healthcare workers because they're invisible. You are healthy because there is a waste picker and a sanitation worker that picks your trash and there is no possibility of, you know, uh, airborne diseases in your house and you have... You know, you're healthy because somebody is taking care of the work yes. of treating your water. So these life supports, I, I, it, it was amazing how, how what you just said closed the loop on why Lynn had published that paper in the Encyclopedia of Life Support Systems. Because we lack the institutional architectures to make life support systems visible. Mm-hmm. We do not have rules, norms, and institutions that make this care work visible. And they're invisible because they need to be operating outside of the public sphere so that you can operate in the public sphere. So, you know, we have workers like, for example, uh, nannies and nannies who are invisible because, you know, people need to have, or, or daycares, you know, people who have children need to leave their children in a daycare with or with a nanny. And that's invisible work. But that's invisible work that allows scholars and, and, and workers in the public realm. So there 
invisibilized from the public sphere so that we can operate in the public sphere. Um, and, and, and it's only under crisis, like the one that we're living right now with COVID, that you see that life support systems become visible. Yeah. And the question then becomes, and this is a question not only for you guys, but also for me as a scholar, is how can we make care work visible all the time, not just in a crisis? Yeah, you don't, things aren't visible until they stop working for you. Exactly, exactly. And then you notice it. It's like, oh, I took this for granted. Whether it's, yeah, there's lots of examples we can all think of. I would like to bring up a, a really interesting anecdote. So I, one other area that I study is water conflict. And I've been studying one particular conflict related to a mine in Zacatecas, up north from Aguascalientes, about three hours away from here in Leon. And uh, it's really interesting because the conflict is actually between uh, environmentalists and the government. Local people actually like mines and local people want the mine to operate, the, the mine in, in Zacatecas, in Mazapil, Zacatecas. Um, and I did this you know, ethnographic work. But at some point, this is such a small town that at some point we needed food. So I went to the restaurant's bathroom and it was impossible to use. So I had to basically walk through town so that I could ask someone to allow me to use the toilet. And these were in such poor conditions. I mean, I'm talking about a restaurant that had a non-working toilet. This is in, 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 in civilized society. I think this is unthinkable. Uh, so I, I literally went door by door and saying, you know, can I use your bathroom? And they're like, well, we don't have a very functional bathroom. I ended up finding not even in like hospitals or, you know, it was insane. It was terrible. Like my worst experience trying to find a bathroom and I studied toilet insecurity. So uh, <laughs> it was, I was like, you know, I am a case of toilet insecurity. So anyway, I ended up going to, to a stationary store. You guys, anybody who follows me on Twitter know that I am completely addicted to stationery and to books. So I went to stationary store and the stationary store lady said, you should use our bathroom. This is something we're actually pride on. We have very, uh, very clean bathroom and toilet and you can use it. And it was the best bathroom, like the best bathroom in the entire city, well, not city, the entire town was in a stationary store. So anyway, I went to the bathroom and I was like, you know, I, I should probably buy your entire store just because you allowed me to go to the bathroom. But all of this anecdote is, is to remind myself as a scholar and, who studies toilet insecurity as well, how we take for granted such important and vital life support systems. I mean, you can survive two or three days with no water, but I triple dare any of you to survive three days with not going to the bathroom. This is one of the reasons why we have, you know, a billion people, a mil like a thousand million people in the world you know, defecating in the open because they don't have access to the dignity of a toilet. So that's why I also do some work on the human right to sanitation, on toilet insecurity. I mean, people should have the dignity of accessing a toilet. Mm -hmm. And this brings me, dignity also is, is something that we don't talk about a lot, uh, but it, every, every time 
I think about the work, for example, of Lynn and Vincent. I think about dignity. In, in a lot of their work, they were interested in improving the livelihood of people. And in that sense, I think one of the ways in which I think we are seeing our lack of ability to deal with crisis is not allowing people the dignity of a good death or a good convalescence. And I was just told, I, I was just reading in the New York Times, people with COVID who are hospitalized are not being allowed the dignity of having someone close to them before they, they you know, say their last words and their, their last goodbyes before they die. I mean, can you imagine that? And not also having the dignity of being buried, but you see bodies in Ecuador, bodies of people who are dying of COVID on the streets. So speaking of, of COVID, um, I saw that you had a recent blog post also about this, about the challenges of conducting ethnographic fieldwork, um, you know, I'll say in these times. So I, I was interested in hearing you say more about that too and, and your own personal views on this for yourself and for other people. So, yeah, and, and the reason why I, I wrote this uh, blog post is because um, I am immunocompromised. I have an autoimmune disease. I have psoriasis. Uh, and psoriasis, you know, reveals itself in many ways. But the way in which it revealed in my body is I got chronic fatigue, chronic pain, and dermatitis and eczema all over my body. This was something that flared up last year uh, in the summer, right after I came back from from Paris, and it lasted about seven months. So, you know, I I had to actually teach, travel, do research, publish, and so on, while facing chronic fatigue, chronic pain, uh, eczema, psoriasis, and, uh, and dermatitis. And now I'm doing fine right now. I mean, my, my dermatitis and my psoriasis have actually, you know, completely uh, faded, but I, I reflected on the fact that, you know, I'm part of the vulnerable populations that COVID could take out. And, and you know, I could be that 2% that gets killed. So that means that I am definitely in no way going to be able to conduct ethnographic work. And ethnographic work feeds my life. I mean, I, I study, I embed myself in landfills in uh, very impoverished communities, and I spent their months trying to understand their, you know, problems with lack of access to water, to sanitation. Uh, in, in way speaking, I, I try to understand their behavior. So basically, you know, I'm glad that I've done field work because I don't think I'm going to be able to do that anymore. You know, with the degree of infectiousness that COVID has. Sending anybody onto the field right now, it's basically, you know, it, it's, I think it's unethical. I actually think it's unethical. So what's going to happen is that it's going to be, uh, we're going to have to see a change and a shift in the research questions that we ask. I mean, if we are asymptomatic carriers, that puts the populations that we study at risk. And we have an ethical, you know, conundrum. I don't want, if I am healthy, but I'm an asymptomatic carrier, I don't want to bring COVID to marginalized populations. I don't want to bring, you know, one of the things that I spent this week doing was I collected information 
for waste pickers. So I started training waste pickers on how to pick waste more safely in the times of COVID. You know, this is a way you should wear a mask and you should wear, you know, gloves and you should bring, you know, um, sodium chloride solution to disinfect sort of the exterior of the bags that you're picking. Uh, so I, I'm developing with with people with the Mexican Society for uh, Waste Management. I'm developing guidelines on how you as a household, but also waste pickers, but also sanitation workers, how everybody needs to be protected. And I think that's one of the most important parts of research, of at least my research. And and again, I come back a lot to Lynn and Vincent, not only because we have a, a shared training and a shared uh, sort of background, but also because to me, their work was important in having positive impact on society. And I think you, me, and, and a lot of our colleagues in, in, in not only in the Australians, workshop but also all over the work all over the world share this interest in that our work needs to have a positive impact on society so you know mm-hmm. we end up doing this kind of work we, we we need to rethink field work or that we share our data sets i mean i have eight years that's of a good idea yeah i mean i have eight years of data on on, on informal waste speakers across nine countries and 13 cities. So maybe, you know, other scholars will benefit from my field notes or from, you know, the data sets that are built on studying uh, water conflict all over Mexico. So, you know, I think it's time for more cooperative approaches to doing research because we are no longer going to be able to, I mean, I wouldn't do it and I wouldn't recommend my students to do it. So I don't know how you guys feel about field work right now, but I, I feel, you know, we need to rethink the way we do it. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to see doing it anytime soon, probably not in 2020. And then, yeah, I think there's probably gonna be some longer term adaptations that need to take place, potentially starting with research questions, which are kind of at the root of everything. Um, Stefan, did you wanna jump in with some final questions? Yeah, I'm, 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 it's made me think since you mentioned the question of dignity and how we have to, understand those things a little bit more to put some of things like healthcare uh, or care work back on the agenda and perhaps also framed within a commons frame um, as you mentioned or michael mentioned earlier you're interested in these getting away from these traditional sectors of understanding commons to things like trash picking and water and, and care work and i think you know with your expertise in in, eth- in ethnography as a, as maybe the cornerstone of of qualitative methodologies i'm i'm interested to get your perspective on on the value of that work and assuming that we go back to to doing field work at some point after all of this is over or or moved past and i think it's really useful to hear some of your insights on really some of the things which you've gotten from ethnographic work which could never be understood or things which could never be uh, yeah maybe understood is the right word from other methodologies would for, for example quantification or even more structured surveys uh, for which collect qualitative work and I think that would be really useful for people to to understand wh- some of those details which you can get from that methodology absolutely and, and thank you for asking this question because so CDE, my institution was originally an economics institution so the first degree, they they are like the first undergrad degree and the first master's degree that they had at CIDE was economics. 
And it's interesting because to this day, our students love quantitative methods. Their, their interest is in quantitative methods, you know, machine learning, uh, data mining, uh, you know, data science and uh, multi-level regressions, multi-level models and so on. As, as I told you, my background is actually quantitative. I am a quantitative scholar who then moved to qualitative research because I think it's, it answers better the questions that I have. So in 2018, I published a paper, and I'm happy to also to send you guys this, this paper. I think it's a really, I, I really like it. I published a paper with Kate Parisot from the University of Guelph on uh, developing a new methodology and a new way of doing ethnography that we called doubly engaged ethnography. So this doubly engaged ethnography has three runs. First, the, the run of positionality, how you as a scholar are positioned with regard to uh, way speakers or any other vulnerable communities. You know, how can you, you should recognize that you have a power disparity and, and there's a disparity of, of power, but also, you know, you have very much, you're in a completely more empowered uh, position. So this understanding of your own positionality also helps you see how your work should be important to the communities that you study. The second rung is uh, the ref reflexivity rung. So what we try to do is to, we try to make scholars think about, you know, the research, but also the ethical implications of the research. So, you know, I'm interested in understanding how way speakers choose their location of picking, but also I think about the ethical implications of revealing these choices. Should I tell people or should I tell governments that way speakers choose these locations? Is, is that ethical and, and should I be revealing it in my research? And the third one is the representation. And, and this is important because part of what I have learned in ethnography is that I give voice to people, but also I make their voice shine through my observation and through my studying long-term patterns of behavior, uh, which is one of the benefits of ethnography. You embed yourself for a very extended period of time. You undertake participant observation, but also you, you are part of the context. And one of the things that we say in our double-engaged ethnography piece is that embedding yourself also brings up an ethic of care and an, an ethic of respect for the populations that you're studying. So you can do ethnography itself and just observe and extract information from the community, or you can do double-engaged ethnography. So it's an ethnography that is engaged with the research and the research community, but also with your community of study. And doing that, engaging in an ethic of care to study the community that you're studying becomes a decision that is backed up by an understanding that you are trying to protect these communities. And you're trying to, the research that you're doing is research that is interested in protecting these communities and protecting and improving their welfare. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was like a lot of things you've said today. Rula. That was very well said. Um, are there any particular um, additional points you wanted to make, Rule, before we sign off in a little bit? 
Um, I'd like to make one, and that's related to the work that we've all shared in, in with polycentricity. Mm. I think COVID reveals the importance of polycentricity. I actually think COVID and the national, subnational, individual responses to the pandemic reveals an actual network, polycentric network of governance of the disease. And this is interesting because what I've seen has been a bottom-up approach to responding to the pandemic. I've seen people, individual people empowering themselves and educating themselves and looking for ways to protect themselves. A lot of people, when, when we had these shelter in place uh, regulations imposed on us here in Mexico, the top epidemiologists in Mexico said, well, we can't do this for long because there's going to be a lot of economic impact. Then I thought, you are an epidemiologist. You should not care about the economic impact. You should care about saving lives. Right. Um, and then when I have gone out very, very little and I go out literally to my corner store, buy groceries and then come back and that's all, all I do. I've been very much at home. But our grocery store person said, oh, we have seen a decline in sales, but we understand that this is what people need to do and this is what we all need to do to protect the health of the collective. So this is a bottom-up collective action problem solved by individual nodes in the network. Mm -hmm. So this is not a problem that is being solved by governments. A lot of people in Mexico are taking their health into their own hands. Let's remember, we were the epicenter of the, pand of the pandemic of H1N1, the swine flu in, in 2009. So people know that they need to take precautions and people know why. And people understand that the negative economic impact that we're going to face is also mitigated by the fact that we're going to save a lot of lives if we remain in shelter and we stop and slow down the, the speed of transmission. The, if we stop transmission or we slow down uh, the speed of transmission, the velocity of transmission. It's interesting to see how day-to-day -day normal people are actually doing their part in protecting themselves. This is, I think, an extraordinarily, truly polycentric governance network. And this is fascinating to me because the architecture of global health always puts World Health Organization at the epicenter and at the top. And it becomes a hierarchical structure where, you know, the who says what countries need to do, and then countries sort of need to obey their, their guidelines. But we see is that this hierarchy is not being obeyed. And now there's a multiplicity of centers of power and this multiplicity of centers of power also reveals inequalities within a polycentric network, which means that, you know, we as scholars need to take Lynn and Vincent's work further and look at polycentric networks that work with shared unequal degrees of power. So that means, yes, this is working, but if we flatten the curve, we'll see that this polycentric network worked, but it worked with very uneven nodes of power. So we, we see that actual people 
empower themselves to make decisions about their health, much more than what local governments, state governments, and national governments did. So in that sense, they held more power to govern the disease. Right. Yeah, no, it has been interesting to think about the applicability of a lot of the concepts that we think of, that we work with, right? Collective action problems. This is a global collective action problem. It's depending on how you frame it. Um, and certainly the questions of top-down versus bottom-up governance and whether one or the other is, is more appropriate. It reminds me of the example you were giving earlier about the relationship that some of the waste pickers have with local government and how in a case that seemed to be working a little bit better, potentially there was, there was more of a uh, formalized relationship there. Talking about the asymmetry of power is also important. In the U.S., there's been this tension at multiple levels between the federal government and state governments, but also between state governments and local municipalities. There's been instances where, you know, a mayor will say, okay, well, we all need to shelter in place, but then the governor will say, well, wait, no, you don't. Um, and that's created a lot of this, these um, cross-level tensions and in, in opinions about what we should even do is, has been a big part of the problem, I think. And I think the... There have been in places, there's been a, like a bit of a vacuum at one level that's needed to be resolved by actions at the lower level down, kind of as you were saying, for sure. I mean, it's it's sort of, it's very bizarre. I mean, theorists of federalism would be having a, or are having a field day with this particular case study. So, uh, which brings me again to the original question that you asked me, uh, Michael, about, you know, seeing myself as a political scientist and as a human geographer. One of the things that I find fascinating is that the international relations uh, main journals are not completely crazy about pandemics. You know, you don't see a lot of these, you know, journal articles about pandemics and the international relations of pandemics in, you know, American Political Central Review, American Journal of Political Science, International States Quarterly. So I think this is going to reveal, this problem is going to reveal the importance of being trained more interdisciplinary ways, right? So I'm glad that I have training as a human geographer and that I think about space, place, location, and and the, the geographies of, of all these, you know, issues, because in the end, geography and political science and sociology and anthropology, all disciplines are valuable, and we need to revalue them and revalue interdisciplinary dialogue across all of us. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is a pretty small shop, so we don't really have a long list of producers to thank here, or really any list. You can find us at your local neighborhood podcasting app, such as Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. You can also find us on our website, essnetwork.net. And on this site, you can find information about other projects related to environmental social science that we're working on. Until next time, 